There is a big birthday coming up, and this is somebody who is related to CKNW producer Ben Dooley. And to tell the story of something pretty spectacular that is being organized, Ben is with us. Ben, hey, good afternoon. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm so glad that, that you wanted to share this because it is a great idea and we are happy to help and try and make this happen. First, though, tell us who's having a birthday and what birthday it is. Yeah, so uh, my nan, uh, Dooley, is, uh, is turning 100 uh, in a little over, uh, a little under a month, uh, sorry, uh, October 8th. Uh, she will be celebrating uh, her un- her 100th uh, birthday, and I'll be uh, making the trip across the country uh, to Newfoundland, where she uh, was born and where where she lives uh, to celebrate with her. That's uh, pretty amazing. When you think back, uh, the things that she must, well, the things that she has seen and witnessed turning 100. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's it's just uh, spectacular, uh, the, the things that uh you know she she remembers she can she can remember things um you know 50 years ago and tell you the exact day that that it happened uh and uh, her memory uh thankfully is just spectacular and it's it's so interesting to you know talk about all the all the changes that have have gone on in the world in the last uh, 100 years yeah, the, um, just amazing, and that she's still able to to take you right back to when uh, things were happening. Uh, now, part of the reason we're talking about this today, not only because it's pretty amazing that she's about to turn 100, but you have started a little bit of a campaign for her birthday. So what are you hoping to do? Yeah, so I, I can't take uh, full credit for this idea. It's actually one of my one of my cousins who came up with the idea. But uh, she told us that... Uh, she wanted to get a hundred birthday cards uh, for her birthday, and and we have a, a pretty big family. Uh, she, she had she had twelve kids, and she's got over over thirty grandkids. Uh, and so, if we kept it in the family, we probably would have gotten close to a hundred birthday cards. But but we we were talking about it, and and you know she's just such an amazing person. Uh, we think she deserves uh, more than a hundred <laughs> birthday cards, and and so we're we're trying to see how many we can get for her, which is amazing. Now is she the kind of person if cards start flooding into her home and start arriving from all over the place, she'll like that, or would or, or what 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 do you think she how will she react to that kind of attention? Oh, I I think she'll be. She'll be overwhelmed uh, by it all. I, I think she'll be uh, amazed that uh, you know so so many people across the country uh, and and you know internationally too. Um, uh, you know, are thinking about her on on her birthday, and and she'll find that that pretty special. Oh, absolutely. Now, if somebody's hearing this, we'll tell people they can email us and we'll pass on where you send the birthday cards if you want to be one of the people sending a card to Nan Dooley. But what kind of cards do you think she would like? Um, you, you know what? I, I, I honestly think, uh, and, and it's, it's cheesy to say this, but I, 
I, I think she would she would love anything. You, you know, she is uh, she is uh, the nicest woman, uh, except when uh, you're playing a game of cards with her. <laughs> then she can uh, get uh, get pretty ruthless, and she likes to cheat uh, when she's playing cards. But she will just appreciate uh, that that so many people uh, are thinking about her. <laughs> All right. So best we'll stick to birthday cards, not playing cards. <laughs> exactly. All right. And uh, and interesting. So any kind of card will work. And again, we can tell people where to send the cards and they can do so if, if they choose. So would the idea be then you said you're you're making the trip across the country for the birthday. Is a, is a lot of family going to be gathering there? Yeah. So all of her all of her 12 kids uh, uh, will be there and a bunch of grandkids and and great grandchildren. So, yeah, it's going to be. Uh, a huge, a huge bash. We've we actually have uh, um, over a hundred people uh, on the guest list. So, like I said, uh, you know, if we kept it in the family, we would have gotten close to that one hundred birthday card wish. Wow, what an amazing event this will be as well. As I, I imagine, this is the first time you've gathered at least in the last few years because of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, we've. It's actually only going to be. Uh, the second time since my parents got married in uh, 1989 that all 12 of their kids um, have been in the same room. Uh, the last time was uh, four years ago when she turned 96. Uh, and then the last time before that uh, would have been my parents' wedding in uh, 1989. Wow. So this, And does she know that everyone's coming? Oh yes, yes. Right. Uh, she's she's well aware that uh, that we're all coming and uh, that uh, uh, she she's very excited. You know, with, with so many people uh, coming, just logistically speaking, uh, it would have been would have been too difficult to to keep it a surprise. Fair enough, but I understand, and I won't hold this against Nan Dooley. But I understand she doesn't listen to this show, so we're not ruining anything uh, about uh, the surprise of the cards. So if cards still uh, start showing up, and all of a sudden she's flooded with cards, that could potentially be a surprise. Oh yes, she—I don't think she has uh, any idea um, about uh, the number of of cards that are, are headed her way. She's she's already um, had some show up. She. A woman uh, from Nova Scotia uh, had had sunflowers uh, delivered to her home, and and so she she's already uh, started to get a hint that uh, that something is up, but I don't think she understands the full extent of it just yet. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad that we could talk about this and do whatever we can to get the word out there and get people, if they've got a birthday card lying around or if you uh, want to go get a card and send it to, to Nan Dooley, hopefully let's let's aim for a 1,000. Why not? If we can surpass a 100, why not go for a 1,000? Oh, that would be incredible. All right. Well, Ben, thanks for jumping on the show here and telling us all about this. And we'll keep reminding people and we'll get those cards to Nana Dooley for her 100th birthday. Yeah. If anyone uh, is interested in sending a card, they can uh, send me an email. Um, my email here is uh, ben.dooley at cknw.com. All right. Sounds good. Ben, thank you.
Thank you. All right. So there you have it. If you want to send a card to Nan Dooley, rather than us putting her address out on the air, which she might not appreciate so much, send an email either to Ben or to me. Again, Ben's email address is ben.dooley, and that's D-O-O-L-E-Y at cknw.com. You can send me an email, jill at cknw.com. If you email us, we will happily pass along the address, and you too can send Nan Dooley a birthday card for her one. 100th birthday, which is coming up, all the family joining her in Newfoundland. It's going to be a great party, but wouldn't it be amazing if we could get those cards just flooding into her home? We promise to send you a picture as well. If you uh, send a card, we will share the outcome with you uh, after the birthday party as well. So email either one of us, ben.dooley at cknw.com or jill at cknw.com. We are checking in again with Ben O'Hara-Byrne, the host of A Little More Conversation here on CKNW. And as you know, Ben O'Hara-Byrne is in London. Ben, thanks so much for joining us once again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Jill. Uh, What have you been seeing and experiencing there today? Yeah, it's it's been again a day full of uh, moments. Clearly, the uh, a lot of talk about just the size of the the length of the lineup to see the Queen lying in state, which is now at uh, a 19.5 hour wait. Um, So it'll be overnight for anyone who's in there now. So that's been uh, something to see. Uh, There's been some quite uh, well-known people in that that line today, that queue. Uh, David Beckham was one of them. Um, Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney, according to his own Twitter feed, is there tonight. He's flown over to wait in that line. So uh, they had to close it at one point today. They had to stop people from joining because it was simply getting too long. They didn't, I don't think they had accommodated, they hadn't allowed for a lineup that long. So now they've, I guess they have a bit. Um, But at some point they may have to close it again because there are simply too many people and they're not going to have enough time to allow everybody to get through. So 19.5 hours is that line. And it's relatively chilly by London standards tonight, about nine degrees. So it's going to be a long night for those waiting out there. But I spoke to a, I spoke to people today, just out of curiosity, uh, 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 some Australian friends who spent 36 hours getting here, then spent 12 and a half hours in that line. And they said it was worth every moment. So if that's, if that's the case, then so be it. Wow, that's just to even think of that, and I know we've been seeing some of the images as well, and even the the overhead images of just how long that line goes. And that was when it was only I say only now, but only nine hours. I can't even imagine. Like you said, they probably hadn't even thought of just even physically where the line would go. No, I mean I I, I waited in it for five and a bit on on Wednesday morning, on Thursday morning rather. It's it's Friday, isn't it? On uh, <laughs> Thursday morning, uh, just because I wanted to have an idea of how it worked and how the logistics were and where where, where you ended up and um, and what people talked about. Um, and I can't imagine what nineteen point five hours was would be like because five was already pretty long. Um, yeah, that's going to be. I mean. The chance to see this, and this is what I, everyone I spoke to talked about, and I think I mentioned it to you yesterday, and I heard it again today, that to not see it would be a regret. So people are willing to take whatever time it takes just to be through. And I guess there's also, you know, the sunken co- the part of the sunken cost factor where if you've been in a line for six hours, then you just stay till it's done, right? Right, right. And even, and not that it's about the celebrities, but I, I saw David Beckham, as you mentioned, and he was yeah. joking around saying, I think he waited 13 hours or slightly more than 13 and was talking about the food that he and all of the others were eating and what they were doing to pass the time. 
Yeah. No, I mean, one of those things. So, so when I met this, these Australian friends, they emerged and because there's quite a few people in that area, you can't always tell who's been in, who's come out of the, of, of Westminster hall and they emerged and they obviously had Australian accents and they were with these two a gentleman with British accents, you know, brothers, older brothers, and they were hugging and chatting. And I realized they had just spent 12 hours together in line, right? So they had been talking the whole time, like a seatmate on a plane, for instance. Um, and, and, you know, they were fast friends. And I said, well, you must have made your, your, as I do from the day before, I said, your lineup, your Q friends, aren't you? And they said, oh, yeah, we're Q friends now. So there's been a lot of that. And I think, um, I think that's made it you know, it's a shared experience. And I think that's been part of the appeal for people who've waited as well is that they've gotten to meet people and talk about this. And it's, an, you know, in that sense, it's probably a lot more bearable than the um, than the time with the waiting time would suggest. Yeah, absolutely. Such a nice kind of side story to, to what's happening and, and what's going on in the preparations. Uh, what do we know more about? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the funeral and the procession and we have a we'll have special coverage on that. But before we do that, what about uh, the princes and what are we seeing from the royals today? So um, the king was in Wales today. That was his last stop in his uh, United Kingdom tour. He spoke Welsh. I don't know if people remember back to when he was uh, made the Prince of Wales. He actually learnt some Welsh because it hadn't been done before. And he spoke Welsh um, back when. And he spoke Welsh again today. So that was uh, part of his Wales tour. Talked again about uh, the loss and so forth. Um, and then tonight they stood what's called the Vigil of the Princes. So the king was back in London. We saw him drive by from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall. And he was there with his siblings, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew and, and Prince Edward. And they stood at the four corners of the coffin uh, for 15 minutes. It's the regular changing of the guard. But they stood guard. Um, it's interesting that Princess Anne's the first woman to have done so. Hmm. She did this first in Edinburgh, but first time this has happened in London, um, that they stood vigil. And then the, the grandchildren will stand vigil tomorrow. I don't think they're actually going to stand vigil at the coffin, but there will be a vigil uh, tomorrow with, with the eight grandkids involved, including, of course, Princess, uh, and, and Princess Harry and, and William. All right. And what do we know then as far as uh, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, Canada's involvement in the funeral and the procession and how things will kind of unfold on that front? Yeah, we actually spoke to the Mounties today. They they had a brief um, sort of Zoom press conference with, with two of the Mounties who will be riding. So, you know, there's been rehearsals already. They're going to lead the procession. And the closer we get to this, I think the more... Uh, you know, and not to put, not to go completely overboard, but this will probably be one of the most watched events or watched funerals, certainly in history. And right at the forefront, when when the procession leaves Westminster Abbey to take to to escort the Queen's coffin back up the Mall, as people know that street lined with the Union Jacks, past Buckingham Palace, then up Constitution Hill to Wellington Arch, where the coffin will then be brought to Windsor. Leading that procession will be four Mounties on horses gifted to the Queen by the RCMP Canada over the over the years. And so to imagine that here is this, in, this incredible event and that at the forefront of it will be sort of what most people around the world consider to be the quintessential symbol of Canada. So it should be, an, it should be quite, uh, quite striking to see in full red surge, obviously, um, in their dress uniforms when it actually happens because Canada will have a very, the most prominent place in this, in this, uh, in this procession really to lead it. Um, so that, that should be, and they're clearly, you know, nervous, uh, but they talked about this is a no fail task. And I thought, is it ever, is it ever? So, you know, yes, yeah. that's uh, to say the least uh, for sure. Uh, ben, one other quick note, the Pope not coming. Is that a surprise? 
You know, I don't think so. I mean, we, we saw when he was in Canada that clearly getting around has been tough for him. Uh, his mobility has been reduced. And I think, I mean, I, perhaps you would have expected him to be there given the circumstances. Um, but it's, you know, it's a very quick visit. And uh, there's probably some, you know, sitting on, you know, there, it probably would have been, he's probably in a position where he would have thought all the different logistics around having him there it might be worth sending someone else or perhaps there's something that we don't know uh, but it was a bit of a surprise but again after we saw him in Canada uh, I think one could have imagined that maybe he's keeping his trips to a minimum these days all right Ben O'Hara Byrne thank you so much for this as always thanks Jill have a nice weekend you too well, we've been hearing a lot about restaurants and the price of food. And will we perhaps in the near future or are we already seeing smaller portions and higher prices? Well, this is because a group representing restaurants in Canada says now that bef- the pandemic hangover is making it a bit of a bumpy road when it comes to recovery. This is a new report from Restaurants Canada. It says that rising expenses, low customer counts, high debt and low profitability all continue to make it difficult to stay afloat in the food services industry. We also heard earlier from Mark Von Schelwitz, who is with Restaurants Canada, saying one of the biggest challenges continues to be trying to fill job vacancies. As a result of the labour shortage alone, we've uh, got a lot of our restaurants that are only operating at about 80% capacity because they simply don't have the staff to be fully open. He says on the positive side, though, customers are coming back in droves. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. And joining us now is Patrick Austin, the Director of Restaurant Operations at the Global Group. Patrick, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, maybe we can start with the employees and staff shortages. I think the number that Mark Von Schelwitz said that right across the country right now, there's more than 170,000 positions to fill. What are you seeing? Well, we're seeing it. That's for sure. Uh, Global Group, um, we've been blessed in uh, this market, uh, in the industry in Vancouver, um, and and we survived a crazy couple of years through the pandemic, but there's no doubt that um, the, the, the workforce has shifted and finding, finding people that want to work long hours and, and a challenging industry is not easy. I don't know where all the workers have gone. And I think that's sort of the age old question, but it has been hard. Uh, and, and I don't think that our, our customers um, should be put through uh mediocre service or mediocre experiences because we can't find staff. That's just going to drive people away permanently. Right. And and certainly, uh, the, as we heard there in, the, in that report, uh, a lot of restaurants mm. are dealing with that and having to, yeah. to find creative ways to get around that. One of the other findings as well uh, was inflation and the report yes. saying that it's expected that menu inflation, that prices could go up about 7.8 or 8 uh, percent. How do you deal with that and that there has to be a point in which people are going to look at things and, and understand why the prices are going up, but still saying, well, it's too expensive? No, you're right. That's a great. That's a great point, Jill. We um we, we look at our pricing all the time, and I think that most restaurant operators are are in the same boat as we are. Uh, it is a common practice to review your pricing. So I think that you know beyond this madness of inflation in the last several months, year, um, restaurants have always looked at the affordability of dining out, and and consumers shouldn't be fooled that that we. Uh, have ever been anywhere besides that fine line of profitability. Restaurants have always been on the edge of profitability, which means 
uh, we always are charging uh, the, the most that we can afford to charge without affecting our business or conversely, the, the lowest point we can afford to charge our guests where we don't go bankrupt. So restaurants have always been on that fine line. So it's not like we can all of a sudden do uh, across the board 10% or 15% price increase. It's just not possible. Uh, people would turn around and say, I can only afford to dine out once a month, but now I can only afford to dine out uh, uh, once every three months. And once that happens, uh, we go down a slippery slope of driving our customers away permanently. So what we do instead is we look for, for seasonal uh, price adjustments. Rarely do prices go down. Our suppliers, our pricing, our costs never go down. But we look for, for very small incremental price changes. Maybe your coffee costs $4.25 when it used to be $4. Or, or, or maybe the side salad is six fifty when it used to be $6. And it's those kinds of price increases that we're constantly paying attention to. But really, it gets back to... Um, the affordability of dining out and, and the cost of living in Vancouver and, and how we can afford to pay our staff is really what it gets down to. Right. And, and are people expecting things differently in the coming out of the pandemic? Did we mm-hmm. learn things? Or, I mean, one of the common things that we, we kept hearing or I heard from people, whether it was yeah. people calling in or, or writing in, was, well, maybe this is a wake-up call and now you know you have to pay your employees better or treat employees better. But, I mean, I worked in restaurants yeah. too. I mean, you can make a, a very good living in, in re- working in restaurants and working in the service industry. Well, you can, Jill. I mean, there's a reason why we're one of the largest employment sectors in, in the province. But, but I also think that the idea of, of saying, oh, just pay your employees better, uh, that if, if my decision that I pay my employees is the most I can. I, uh, being one of the owners in the company, it's, it's not uncommon for me to supervise people that get paid more than I do because I love this industry and it is what I do. And I don't think there are very many restaurant operators, whether it's large groups or mom and pop operations that are really rolling in the money and, and pocketing hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars a year. Uh, at the end of the day, we're trying to make um, uh, the entire equation work and saying something as, as glib as, oh, pay your, pay your staff better. It's, it's very short-sighted because we really do make constant efforts to pay our staff uh, as best we can. Uh, and I realize that everybody wants to make more money. And the reason they have to make more money, it's the affordability factor of living in, in this city. Uh, Canada is an expensive country. British Columbia is an expensive province. And Vancouver is the expensive city in this country. And so we have to make it so our staff can afford to live somewhere near where they work. And that's the problem, is our staff cannot afford to live I cannot afford to live in the neighborhood in which I do business. Right. And then you, you're dealing with people that are working off hours and trying to find other ways, whether it's transit or find ways to get to yeah, and from work, exactly. right? Exactly. And so, so downtown Vancouver, we're, 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 again, blessed with an incredible market. We have uh, corporate businesses coming back. Uh, conventions are back. Tourists are back. The cruise ships are, are back. And that's amazing. And, and anybody who's been to a global restaurant group site or, or anybody in our market knows that the restaurants are busy, and that's great. But we have to pay our staff well. And paying our staff well comes from somewhere. And we have to be really mindful about where it comes from and how we get it. And you can only shortchange the consumers so much. A, a decreasing portion sizes is not a solution. That's for sure. People notice it. Uh, we hear about it. Uh, and the perception of value is important. 
So we have to really mitigate those. I'll give you a great example, Jill, a great example. One of our restaurants, we were paying about $11 a pound for, for our steaks. Right, uh, the beef, beef tender one, $11 a pound. And overnight, it went to $22. So you can't just turn around and say to Jill, the customer, that, that we're going to double the price of your steak. It doesn't work like that. We increase the price of steak by a couple of dollars. Now, if it's going up the price, if dining out is going up like that for our customers, living is going up for our staff as well. And so we have to pay attention to paying our staff, being competitive, being fair, and keeping the business solvent. Because if we just take all of our money and either put it in our pockets or put it in the pockets of our staff or don't adjust our prices, then our businesses are going to go under. Right. But even with that example, I mean, if something mm. goes up, a steak goes up, the, the price for you doubles and you put the price mm. up a couple of dollars. How is that even sustainable for you? Well, it can be. I mean, it, there, there's, there's math there. There's math. And you got to understand, we look at it. I'll give you a fantastic example. Last week, I sat with one of my teams in one of the restaurants and we said, OK, what can we do for minor price adjustments so that we can afford to give a dollar an hour raise to our, our cooks? We said, what's it going to cost to give our cooks a dollar an hour raise? And we did the math. We figured out it's going to cost 600 bucks a week. So we went through our prices and we said, okay, well, if our um, Shirley temples go up by, by 50 cents or if our uh, add-on chicken breast goes up by, by a dollar, what does it work out to? We do the math and we figure it out. So it's not always uh, proportional. We say halibut just doubled in price, therefore your menu price doubles. It doesn't work like that. We look for uh, recovery of, of increased costs in different places. When, when fuel surcharges get applied to all of our deliveries, uh, which is a huge one, the price of fuel has impacted the cost of our operation, and I don't, I don't have any vehicles, but the cost of fuel has been incredible on the cost of our, our, uh, our operation. Yeah, but I hope that I, answered your question. Oh, it, it does. And, and things kind of, I think that people probably don't think about a whole lot uh, when, when going yeah. to restaurants. But has the, the behavior of people, and maybe not so much in the kind of restaurants you have, but mm. has the behavior mm. changed in that people have shifted more to takeout or going to places where people don't mind, uh, they know there's not enough staff, so they yeah. don't mind having to go to the counter and enter and kind of do like a yeah. London pub style thing? Well, those, those concepts are fantastic. And no, I don't have restaurants like that. But uh, I do dine in restaurants like that, and I enjoy it. But I don't think our customers are willing to compromise in the quality of their experience or the quality of their product. I think that's the number one thing that keeps our customers coming into our restaurants. And when we or anybody compromises on the quality of what's on the plate or what happens in the room, people notice. Because people will pay for a good experience if they're happy. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but as for the the... the um, takeout market. It's been huge. It's been huge for us. And most operators have pivoted to accommodate the takeout market, which, which again, we appreciate. But don't forget, the cost of the platforms is significant. Anywhere from 15 to 25% of the cost goes straight to the online ordering platform. All of the takeout containers, I mean, we rewash our plates and our cutlery and our glassware in the restaurant, but we buy single-use uh, containers for our guests. So the costs, they basically shift. So, so as much as we love takeout business, and we do, it helps us keep our staff here. It's not like it's a profitable uh, sector 
that just all of a sudden um, makes the business worthwhile, if that makes sense. Right. And and Patrick, one other question. I was curious yeah. about this as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we did see people tipping or, or at least anecdotally, people were tipping, I think, a bit more during the pandemic yeah. to try and make yeah. sure uh, that, that people were being supported. Has that continued? Yeah. And how much are servers and restaurant service industry workers dependent on tips? Well, it's a, it's a huge factor. I know that when I dine out, I, I tip very well. I mean, I was a, a waiter for for ten years, so I know how. Uh, I, do, I I didn't get into to <laughs> I didn't get into the the table waiting industry or the restaurant industry for my health. That's for sure. Uh, it's a tough business, um, and and a lot of people do depend on it. And I wish that uh, tipping as a as an institution was was one that could be managed and regulated better. I wish it could be. Uh, but the truth is, is that, that tipping is a part of this industry, and it's a reason we have such great people. One of the uh, uh, statistics you, you, you've been ta- talking about and, and that is being talked about is uh, how uh, the customer satisfaction of the, in the restaurant industry is one of the highest out there. People enjoy going to restaurants, and they enjoy the people in restaurants. Uh, I think it says something like 74% of the public thinks that, that dining, dining out the hospitality sector people are great. And I love that. Uh, and tipping has a lot to do with it. I do think that, that we saw a spike in, in gratuities uh, during COVID. I think there was a lot of um, understanding and sympathy and support for, for this sector. And I got to be honest, I'm grateful for it. It hasn't changed. Uh, I think the, particularly in Vancouver, Vancouver diners have been really supportive of restaurants. They're very patient. Uh, and they're very understanding and they're open to uh, our challenges and they're supportive of our challenges. So we're grateful. We're grateful. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. Patrick Austin, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Still, we really appreciate having a voice and thanks for getting us on here.